นโมตัสสะกุวะทัวระหะทัวสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะนโมตัสสะกุวะทัวระหะทัวสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะนโมตัสสะกุวะทัวระหะทัวสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะพุทธังมังสังขังนมัสสะAs we would all know, today is the full moon of the month of Waisak, and so we're making a point of reflecting with gratitude today on the good fortune of having heard these teachings from the Buddha. This was the occasion in which the Buddha realized full and final awakening under the Bodhi tree, and. Here we are, 2,600 and something years later, and we're still paying attention to these teachings. We're still applying ourselves to these teachings, and feel very fortunate that we have this opportunity. And this evening, as as usual on Saturday evenings, we chant together the the Tamma Chakapawata Sutta, which the Translates as the turning of the wheel of law. This is actually a teaching that the Buddha gave two months after his awakening. So, just the beginning of the rains retreat. There's an occasion when we celebrate or first teaching that was given by the Buddha. And, but it's always worth taking time to remind ourselves what's actually contained in these teachings. Probably many of us have heard them over and over again many times, and and we can end up taking them for granted. That's uh, even things as mundane as our physical health. We take it for granted until, oops, you break an arm or something. You can't use your arm, and you really miss not having your arm. And uh, electricity. How often do we stop and and really register how amazing it is to walk into a room and just. Push a little switch and light, or turn a little dial, and the room warms up very quickly. And these conveniences that we have, and at this stage of the evolution of human society, are now so common that we just take them all for granted and don't really appreciate them. When the electricity goes out, we think that something disastrous has happened. We Register all sorts of complaints with the electricity department. This human condition that we live in is actually really hard work. What the Buddha realized, what the Buddha awakened to, was how to optimize on this opportunity, how to really make the most of this opportunity that we have, as having been born as human beings. That there is. An opportunity he realized to cultivate not just the fields, so we get nice vegetables, or not just to cultivate our online persona, or not just to cultivate our friends and 
But, as I was mentioning this morning at the gathering at the mealtime, the cultivation of that dimension that we call the awareness of self, the jitta in Pali language, the heart. And that's what this Dhammachaka Sutra is about. That's, that's what this discourse is about. The Buddha is laying out what we can, if we wish, do with this opportunity of our human existence, which is cultivate the purity that means we can be free from all suffering. That's the invitation. The expression of a purified heart is perfect wisdom and perfect compassion. And that, from the time of his enlightenment onwards, was the activity of the Buddha. And and why and how we understand here we are 2,600 years ago and we are still paying attention to his teachings and applying ourselves to his teachings. The wisdom was so pure, the compassion was so boundless that it's still perfectly 100% relevant today. There's not many things around today that were perfectly relevant 2,600 years ago. But the teachings of the Buddha are still relevant. And so this Dhammachakapavatana Sutta, the Buddha laying out, explaining, this is the program you need to follow. Apply yourself to this. And then what happens, instead of paying attention to things that don't reward us with real benefit, we end up being interested in those things that do generate real benefit. But it is a training, it is a discipline, it is a, a cultivation, it is work. If we don't, don't do this work, well then, as I'm sure all of us would recognise, our attention just gets dissipated. It looks at this and tastes that and smells this and so on. And distractions of the sensory world, agreeable and disagreeable as they all can be, they're not necessarily going to be very productive if we haven't addressed the core issue, that is, the unawakened state. We're all getting around somewhat blind. Our inner seeing is significantly obstructed, and the Buddha said it doesn't have to be that way. And so he laid out this teaching, and, and if we follow it, then what he suggests is the case is that we learn from everything. We don't have to just be busy pursuing happiness and pleasure and joy and agreeable conditions, which none of us would deny that agreeable conditions are agreeable, but we also can learn from and benefit from that which is disagreeable. In fact, maybe it's the case that the most important things can learn from are often disagreeable. That's why in this discourse there's sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief and despair. The Buddha spells it all out. The, and then api yehi sampi yoga dukkha, pi yehi vipi yoga dukkha, yampi chanalapanti tampi dukkha. All the different types of dukkha. Soka paridewa dukkha domanasa upayasa. Explains in detail there's this kind of suffering and that kind of suffering and this kind of pain and that kind of frustration and this kind of disappointment and that kind of lamentation. And, and why did he frame his first teaching like this? Is because he realized that it's through not seeing these things, it's through not understanding the actuality of that which is difficult, 
that we keep avoiding it. And at this time of unparalleled opportunity and good fortune and affluence and access to education and health and convenience, never before throughout all human history has it been this way, it's not the case that we have greater wisdom and compassion. Why? Because we haven't been paying attention in this particular area. Not because we're all ill-intentioned, but because our attention is distracted. And so the Buddha framed his first discourse in this way. He said, these are the things that are really worth paying attention to. And if we train our attention to not just turn away, but to look into, then we can see beyond the way things merely appear to be. So often it's the case that when sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief and despair, and disappointment, frustration comes to us, we, we look away from it and we say, who can we blame? Whose fault is this? And just get lost and confused and angry and, and sometimes sadly sink into depression. All of those are unfortunate and unproductive reactions to what's happening. If we have the discipline of attention, well then we can pay attention, really look closely at what's really going on here. What is actually happening here? Where is this suffering coming from? Somebody shared with me recently an inspiring incident in their own personal practice where they were saying how they noticed the way they'd been getting around for a while and in a bit of a sulk because somebody had said something or done something that upset them and they were kind of wallowing in this grumpy state and feeling hard done by and downright miserable and until something shifted and what they realized was that this person that they were feeling irritated by is suffering. This person is suffering. And with a perception of their suffering, his own suffering was transformed. Instead of wallowing in his own feeling sorry for himself and making his condition more disagreeable, he was freed from it. In other words, that shift in perspective, that shift in understanding transformed his experience. And this is the power of Dhamma. This is the power of cultivated awareness. We all have awareness. We all have consciousness. We're human beings and we have this potential, but if we don't cultivate it, then we don't have necessarily the transformative power. We can't look at suffering and then learn from it, grow from it. In fact, develop wisdom and compassion from looking at suffering. So once again, this teaching that the Buddha gave is an explanation, an invitation, laying out for us, this is the path that you need to walk if you want to realize what I realize, this possibility of complete freedom from suffering. And so... The invitation is to equip ourselves with the skills so that we can heed what the Buddha was suggesting. Not just read discourses and commentaries and, and think and speculate and proliferate about what the Buddha meant, but really training our attention so we can do what we need to do to see beyond the way things appear to be. 
when I'm in a bad mood, the way it appears is that somebody's done something wrong. If it's somebody else, well, then I can get angry at them. If it's me, well, then I can wallow in my self-pity and, and resent myself for not being as good as I should be or feeling sorry for myself or something that makes it worse. But if we have prepared ourselves, if we have done the jitta bhavana, if we've engaged in this path of practice and prepared ourselves, then there's a chance that our vision, our seeing, won't stop short at the apparent level and we'll see beyond it. And see, there's a cause. There's a cause to this condition. What am I doing? What am I adding to this perception that is turning it into real suffering? The Buddha and the waking beings all realize complete freedom from suffering. So suffering is not an obligation. Disappointment, despair, frustration, none of it is an obligation. Pain, yes, that's just part of having a a body and a mind. That's part of the package, just like pleasure. That just comes with having been born. But we do something extra which turns pleasure and pain into suffering. So to prepare ourselves, to work with our attention so that we don't allow our seeing to fall short of that which is possible. So we can see beyond. We learn to maybe start seeing beyond the way things appear on the surface. A couple of weeks ago I gave a talk on the it was called Making a Difference, and I was trying to explain how we need to pay attention to the foundations, and like giving the image of building a house, and if you, you just spend your time focused on the colour of the paint that you're going to decorate the living room with, you're probably not going to get very far. If we don't pay due attention to the foundations, then we can't trust in the structure that gets built and so the foundations of the spiritual life and my observation and the things that really make a difference I was pointing out uh, like the cultivation of sila which you know, living a life of integrity leads to a sense of self-respect and self-confidence and that's very important if we don't have confidence then we give up hope and as we would of course all know uh, sati Mindfulness, watchfulness, attentiveness, carefulness, all of these words approximate what the Buddha is referring to with his word sati. That's really essential. If we don't have this watchful quality of attention, then we can't learn. And then also indriya sangara, sense restraint, is talking about the, the ability to say no to our reactions. So often... We get swept away, something really agreeable and lovely comes along. Oh, it's sunny, it's beautiful, and I'm not going to do any work today. I'm just going to go and sit in the sun. And You go and sit in the sun, fall asleep in the armchair, and then get seriously burnt. Oops, <laughs> wasn't very clever, not very nice, a lot of pain. You know, who knows, even increasing the risk of skin cancer and you know, thoroughly disagreeable result. And where did that come from? Well, it wasn't the sun's problem. It was because we didn't know how to say no to that reaction. So something thoroughly agreeable comes along, it's very easy to spoil it. We need to be able to say, that's the right amount, no more. And that's a training. 
Oh, not to mention the disagreeable things that come along. You know, somebody comes into the Dhamma Hall wearing stinky socks, and you've got to sit next to somebody for an hour and a half with really stinky socks. You know, you can have all sorts of stories going through your head. What's wrong with this person? Why don't they get a life? And <laughs> look after what are they? Mother never taught them how to maintain their hygiene or something. And, can really be giving yourself a bad time over somebody else's stinky socks. Well, it's not your stinky socks, so what's the problem? It's just a disagreeable smell. It, it happens. A lot of life is disagreeable. If we can't say no to our reaction, then we get pulled into disliking, pulled into liking. So, again, I was pointing out how important it is. It's foundational to be able to say no the right way and the right time. And then the fourth point I was making was how important it is to cultivate wise reflection, the ability to ask the right kind of questions at the right time in the right way. We might have the right questions, but if we don't ask them in the right way, we can be too aggressive, too greedy. So learning to ask our questions, we don't have to just be intelligent and clever. We need to be able to ask the right questions at the right time in the right way. And pertaining to the spiritual investigation, really asking questions like, what really matters in life? Now, how do you ask that question? Well, this is part of wise reflection. We learn to ask the heart. We don't just ask our heads. That's what they tend to teach us in school, generally. In most cases, is ask your an intellectual question of your brain and, and then think about it. Well, from a dumber perspective, it's perhaps, at least at some stage, it's going to be more important to ask the question, not just even of the heart, but of the whole body-mind, this whole being, ask ourselves the question and then go silent. Don't try and answer. Don't follow the greedy impulse to answer the question, but open up and receive the question and let our attention go deeper into a more feeling, intuitive level of understanding. So all of that was two weeks ago and talking about these aspects of the training that are really important if we want to be able to meet life, meet the suffering that the Buddha was pointing towards, Remember, he said it's through not seeing two things that you stay stuck, that you struggle, and not seeing suffering, not seeing the cause of suffering. So how do we discipline attention to meet that? It's not easy. All of us at this stage of life would know that it can, it really, sometimes life can really hit us with some serious challenges and so understanding the basic principles, as in that talk a couple of weeks ago, highlighting those points that we're thinking about. However, also more than just those ideas about practice, there are other areas that we need to cultivate. And I was alluding to that a minute ago when I mentioned that incident from somebody who was telling me how they transformed their suffering by tuning into the suffering of somebody else. And this is where compassion plays such an important role. Mm -hmm. 
Wisdom and compassion, I like to think of wisdom and compassion as like the front and the back of the hand. They both, they go together actually, wisdom and compassion. They're, they're different expressions of uh, ultimate wisdom, pure wisdom, pure compassion, are different expressions of the purified heart, purified consciousness. Yeah. When awareness is completely free from limitations and obstruction, it naturally radiates perfect wisdom, which sees clearly, understands accurately, and perfect compassion, which feels freely all suffering, the suffering of one's self and the suffering of others. And so this is also something that if we want to prepare ourselves to be able to meet life struggles, which is a smart thing to do, because we're all going to have struggles, so we don't want to wait until they come along. And you don't want to build a dumber hall like this and and uh, in the summer, and then when the winter comes along, you think, oops, I haven't got any heating. Thankfully, we had some clever people draw the plans up for us, and so underneath these nice, lovely oak boards are hot water pipes running up and down. And so you just have to tweak that little switch over there, and the hall warms up beautifully. And so we can use this hall all year, in the summer and the winter. And, but that took some planning, and we needed to think in advance. Okay, it's not always summer. Sometimes it's cold. So we need to think in advance. And, it's no point saying, oh, well, it's not cold at the moment. Well, it will be cold later on. And likewise in life. It's not like, well, I'm young and healthy and everything's just tickety-boo right now. And why do these Buddhist monks always going on about suffering? Like, well, because at the very least you're going to get old and sick and die, and that's probably not going to be a picnic. Lose all your friends, lose all your property, lose your health, lose your mind, <laughs> lose everything. And if we're not prepared for it, and even before that happens, well, probably there's going to be quite a bit of sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief, and despair, and all the rest of it. So, equipping ourselves, cultivating the heart's capacity to mis- receive suffering, not turn away from it, not indulge in it. And those two reactions of turning away from it, pretending it's not happening, and indulging in it and feeling sorry for ourselves. And as an object of meditation, I personally very strongly recommend it. And often I recommend the meditation on compassion over the meditation on loving kindness. And for various reasons, some because some people who have a propensity for cultivating loving kindness just get really happy and sit there with tears of joy streaming down their face, indulging in pleasure and not necessarily getting particularly wise. And then there are those other people who have been hurt by life already so much that telling them that they're supposed to dwell on thoughts of loving kindness just makes the hurt worse or makes them feel more angry. And so cultivating metta, metta bhavana, works for some people but not for everybody. So, so cultivating karuna or compassion has got a very different feel to it. If metta is well-wishing, may all beings be well. Compassion is, may all beings be free from suffering. I can still recall one of my very first years as a junior monk in Thailand, and I was having a very hard time. I can't remember the exact flavour of the suffering that I was caught up in, but probably it was pretty miserable. 
and I was it for a lot of the time and I don't know what it was that well perhaps similar to this story I was told the other day something shifted and I realized that by really paying attention to the fact that people I care about suffer made a difference trying to generate the wish may beings be well may all beings be happy when I didn't feel well or happy myself was very difficult and there, there were certain teachers around who would be going on about wishing all beings be well but they were doing it in a way that kind of sounded like they were covering up something and I wasn't thoroughly convinced then about their well wishing and but what I discovered at that stage of my training was that if I could register my own suffering, it's like this. Sadness is like this. Sadness really hurts, really hurts. Or, or indignation really hurts. And then I would think about somebody who I knew and cared about, a close friend, and then I imagine them suffering, because they do, everybody suffers. I imagine them suffering, the same suffering that I was experiencing right there and then. What happened was the heart gave rise to this genuine, caring feeling. May they not experience that suffering and the beauty of that state of mind. And so that, at that point, introduced me to a very beneficial object of meditation. We can use the suffering of our lives. We don't have to perceive suffering as some sort of an indictment against us. Right? We're failing because we're suffering. So no, feel it. Really feel it. In the body, in the heart, in the mind. This is suffering. And then think of somebody you care about also suffering. Mm-hmm. The number of times that the tears have flowed down their cheeks and then feel that feeling in the heart, register that feeling, and then associate it with a thought form, may they be free from such suffering. May they be free from suffering. And bring those two together, those two signs, the feeling in the heart of genuine, felt, caring, with the thought, may they be free from suffering. May beings be free from suffering. And as an exercise, it can help strengthen, I would suggest, our capacity to be able to welcome the suffering of the world. And when we welcome the suffering of the world, then we can learn from it. As long as we're resisting, indulging and denying, different forms of resistance, avoidance, as long as we're indulging and denying the suffering of life, our own or anybody else's, then we're not really in the position to learn from it. So how to be so open, so available, so attuned with life that when suffering is happening right here and now in front of us, our own or somebody else's, we can receive it, we can meet it and treat it like our teacher and welcome it. Actually, you can talk to it and say welcome. It often takes the sting out of the suffering and more than take the sting out of it, it helps us turn it around and it becomes a nourishment for our commitment to this practice of purifying awareness that we're all engaged in. 
So using the formal meditation on compassion uh, in a structured way, and I was suggesting that you, know, you don't have to wait until you're really you know, miserable before it works. You, all of us can remember times in our life when we've felt rejected, felt misunderstood, uh, felt let down, felt abandoned, and felt anxious. Register that in the body-mind. Call it by its name, sadness, disappointment. And then think of somebody, as I said, you care about suffering. And don't have to be afraid that we're going, we're wishing that they suffer. Quite the opposite. Imagining tears flowing down your mother's cheeks is not because you want your mother to suffer. Quite the opposite. You want to be open to the suffering of your mother or whoever it is you might be thinking about. And then giving rise to the thought, may they be free from suffering. Really feeling it. And then moving on to somebody that we don't really know about. But just the same. You know? Like sitting at the bus station maybe or sitting in the airport and you just look at somebody and imagine tears rolling down their cheeks and remembering, recognizing, oh, that's a, that's a suffering human being. That's a suffering human being. They know suffering in their life and then give rise to that, spread that same wish. May they be free from suffering. Trying to stay attuned to the feeling in the heart and and the thought associated with it. Genuine well-wishing, genuinely wishing they be free from suffering. And if we cultivate it and become skilled at it, then maybe we can even include people that we don't feel so good about. See, beyond our preferences, our dislikes for that person, and just see them, they're suffering, they suffer just like I do. May they be free from suffering. And then what's really nice, if you get some get good at this, and you can bring that same attention right back around towards yourself and say the same thing, may I be free from suffering. May I be free from suffering. And mean it. Not just some synthetic gesture, but really heartfelt, sincere, well-wishing, acknowledging, feeling the suffering that is there and at the same time giving rise to the wishing that I be free from suffering. So I'm suggesting this exercise on this Vaisak evening and particularly uh, by way of helping us cultivate those skills that we need so as to do what the Buddha wanted us to do. He wanted us to stop turning away from the challenges of life, but be able to turn towards them, to embrace them, and to really learn what we need to learn so we stop resisting reality and start to see in new and more relevant ways. So thank you very much this evening for your attention.